And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast recording Thursday afternoon. The season is nigh approaching. Tim Bontemps, we're going to talk about the Eastern Conference. I love the Mets hat. Didn't go well for the Mets this year from what I know, but I love the Mets hat. I love the spirit. Um, Yankees hat gets you kicked off the pod. Mets hat makes you an official friend of the podcast. Uh, my family's all Mets fans going way back. So uh, I have a Mets hat on. And uh, I was glad listening to uh, the low post the other day with our pal, the machine, when you reminded me that you're going to owe me a hundred dollars, which is great. It's a hundred dollars. I didn't, I forgot that I had. So it was a delightful, delightful thing to be reminded of. So thank you uh, for, for that. For people who may not may have forgotten or may have not listened yet to that episode, Tim and I have a bet a hundred bucks. I have the Hawks finishing in the top five in the Eastern conference. Very timely subject matter because inevitably I'm shorting probably one of the two teams we're going to talk about on this podcast and maybe some other teams or both. If the Hawks are going to make the top five while we're on that bulletin board material for Quinn Snyder and Trey young, (laughs) Tim Bontemps says you are a play in team at best stick it up on the bulletin board. Did you see any of Atlanta's first preseason? I think only preseason game so far against the fight in Cleveland Cavaliers. I admit that I have not had a chance to see that yet. I was at three games the last four days, uh, and I'll be going to Nets. None of Nets this game matters tonight. So none of, I haven't none of seen them yet. It, it doesn't matter. The only thing that you <laughs> missed of importance, yeah, you have got to Google image Quinn Snyder from that game. I will do it right now. We know that Quinn Snyder makes. Batman villain level faces at all times. Yes. Just the best faces in the NBA. His hair is outstanding. It's always in the same style. He is now going with thick, bright Atlanta Hawks red lenses or frames oh, rather on his I glasses. These, I see these that, glasses. They're you know what impressive. that tells me? You know what that tells me? He's ready to make Tim Bontemps eat his words huh. and make me $100 richer. Anyway... Tim I just Bonte. appreciated that you reminded everyone that you said top six and I would have been fine betting you on top six. And then you amended it to top five just to make it harder on yourself at the at the time. So, no, I appreciated the whole recollection of it. Some of us believe in Trey Young and DeJounte Murray and some of us, some of us think they're overrated and, you know, frankly, play in superstars. At best. <laughs> you can fall into whatever camp you want. That's, um, well, we'll see what happens. It'll be fun to follow. So here's the theme of our Eastern Conference podcast today. There are two teams in the East that we have not talked about at all, really, as basketball teams. We have talked about them as would-be trade partners, trade engagers, and they are both massively important entities historically and presently in the Eastern Conference. And those are the Miami Heat, who didn't trade for Bradley Beal, didn't slash were not given a chance to slash who the hell knows what happened, did not trade for Damian Lillard. Then did not trade for Drew Holiday right after not trading for Damian Lillard. Watch Drew Holiday go to the Boston Celtics. Watch Damian Lillard go to the Milwaukee Bucks. Watch Max Struess go to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Watch Gabe Vincent go to the Los Angeles Lakers. That's a whole bucket of oh for the Miami Heat. The Philadelphia 76ers still have not traded James Harden. James Harden still has not appeared in a preseason game, nor has Joel Embiid. They've played two preseason games already as of taping Nick Nurse uh, I believe said yesterday after another preseason loss to Peyton Pritchard and the Boston Celtics that um, it's possible slash hoped for that both will appear on Monday night at Barclays Center against the, the Brooklyn Nets is that correct I asked Nick before the game once it was said they were not going to play if it was a fair expectation if James and Joel would play in Brooklyn on Monday a few days later 
Nick said, that's probably a fair way to describe it. But if we're going to have a side bet, I don't know if I would put money on it. So, oh, okay. So I'm going to bet right now. James Harden's not playing Monday at the Barclays Center. I don't know be, if he's. Be my I bet. don't know if he's going to play or not. I, I, but I also like Nick Nurse. Will not be betting on it. I feel a lot better betting on the Hawks not being in the top five than I do betting on James Harden playing in a preseason game. Let's be clear: you're not betting on the Hawks. You're betting against the Hawks, against Trey Young, against Quinn Snyder. Sure. Against I feel Quinn good Capella, betting against, against them against being them. in the. I feel good betting against them in the top five, or much better about betting against them in the top five than I do about James Harden being in the starting five on Monday. This is the most irrational I've ever been about a team. I have no reason, really, to be this optimistic <laughs> about the Hawks. I'm now just having fun being this up. Op- now I have something hey. to root for. I rarely I have anything say. to root for. Now I'm invested. Oh, oh God, the Hawks are down five to Orlando in the fourth quarter. I got to flip over and see what heroics DeAndre Hunter has in his bag <laughs> for clutch time. Um, look, these teams are running out of time to make trades before the season. It's time to actually talk about them as basketball teams. And I want to start with Miami. And I mentioned all the guys they didn't get and all the guys that left, including two starters. Um, I, I can't remember a team that had a more confusing single season than my slash postseason that Miami just had and has a harder to parse four years now behind them in, in the Jimmy Butler era. It's why if you told me they won 42 games this year and barely squeaked into the play-in tournament, just like they did last year, winning 44 games, I'd be like, eh. if you told me they somehow won 51 and were the third seed, I'd say, okay. Uh, to review, last season, the Heat won 44 games, lost to the Hawks, the Fighting Hawks in the play-in tournament, looked like they were drowning in their own offensive incompetence in a must-win, do-or-die game against the freaking Bulls We're about three minutes away. We're about three minutes away from losing a home game to the Bulls to I, not even I make mean, the playoffs. Literally, I was texting someone who knows people on the Heat being like, are they ever going to score a basket again? Like, this is incredible. <laughs> and then Max Struess went crazy. And then they made the NBA Finals. In the regular season, the Heat were 26th in offense and 9th in defense. Their point differential overall for the season was negative 26. They were the third team in the history of the NBA and the first since the 1950s to make the NBA Finals with a negative point differential. I mean, that is the definition of an anomalous, borderline black swan event. Um in the playoffs, their offensive rating rose from 112.3 in the regular season to 113.8. You would think it was higher. Like, that's still not good. That would have ranked 18th in the regular season. And the reason they got to the finals is if you parse their offensive rating by series even, this team was inexplicable series to series, against the Bucks, 119, shooting 45% from three. Against mm-hmm. the Knicks, 112 shooting 30% from three and yet able to survive because the Knicks were even worse on offense against the Celtics. 117, 43% from three. Yay, we're in the finals. We almost blew a 3-0 lead. Then Jason Tatum sprained his ankle. We win game seven. Heroes among us. In the finals, down to 105, 34% from three. In the last four seasons, their average win total um, projected for 82 games, two of them were 72 game seasons, is just 48 wins. They have like these mediocre 44 win campaigns. Then they had the year they were the one seed two, two seasons ago with 53 wins. 48 and 34 is their average record in the Jimmy Butler era. 
I have no idea what to make of this team. No earthly idea. Tyler Hero is back healthy, playing pretty well in the preseason. Josh Richardson is back. I think we may have a starting point guard competition between Josh Richardson and Kyle Lowry, which sounds crazy, but I think that's going to be a thing. Um, Thomas Bryant is now their backup center. Uh, Duncan Robinson is still here. We're going to see where Jaime Jaquez and Haywood Highsmith and Nikola Jovic fit in the rotation. We've gotten some clues in the regular season. Their over-under is only 44.5, so Vegas has them pegged a little bit below their average for the last four seasons. I, I just don't even know. I don't even know. I don't. There's Milwaukee and Boston. And the gap between them and everyone else has only gotten bigger, which is insane because we're talking about the team that beat them both in the playoffs. What do you expect from the Heat? That's a good question. And it's it's going to be one of the tier points. It's going to be one of the more interesting questions in the Eastern Conference this year because, like you said, it is very hard to know which version of the Heat is the real version. Uh, I think we're going to see somewhere in between what the, the Heat's highs and the Heat's lows. Uh, I, I don't think they were a team that should have been fighting for, you know, should have been in the playing tournament last year. They're, as you pointed out correctly, their offense could never get out of gear really all season. It I only got them, out of gear for eight games, for eight wins. I know. That's I know. it. I, I expect them to be a little better on offense this year. Um, but look, they there's a reason they were so interested in trading for Damian Lillard. And it's not just the obvious that Damian Lillard is awesome and was a seamless fit for their team. It was that you looked at their team and what was the problem? They didn't have a guy you could constantly consistently rely on to give you huge production from a scoring standpoint for as good as Jimmy is. That's not, he's not going to give you 30 points a night. That's not what he's going to do. Same with Bam Adebayo, both fantastic players, two terrific defenders do all sorts of different things with the ball, but are not guys that are going to consistently give you 25, 30 points a night. Damian Lillard is, you know, obviously one of the best scores ever and one of the best scores in the league right now and would have perfectly fit with what they need and what they're going to do. So I, I think there's a reason they were trying to do that. Obviously they were disappointed that they were not able to do that. As you said, it's not really worth going down the road of why that didn't happen at this point, but I think when you look at this group overall, you go back to last season, you talk about how bad, how the highs and lows of their offense, they really came down to Gabe Vincent and Max Struess in particular were terrible shooting the ball the entire regular season. And then uh, they and Caleb Martin in different series got incandescently hot in the playoffs. And that was what lifted Miami to the finals. I think playing Duncan Robinson more this year will juice their offense a good amount. I expect him to shoot pretty well. I do think that Jimmy and Bam will be consistent. I think Tyler Hero will be a very good score for them on the wing. Um, I expect him to get better than he was last year. He is obviously not a perfect player. He has his flaws, but he's a very good offensive player. And I just think in general, betting on Eric Spolstra and betting on their infrastructure, I think they'll be in the top six and they won't be in the play-in this year. But at the same time, they are not a team that I look at right now and see them as a serious threat to beat the Celtics or beat the Bucks, or maybe even be able to beat teams like the Knicks or Cavs in a playoff series. Because I think ultimately the reason they were trying to get Dame has not been fixed and their offense is not good enough for me to count on them to win a series like that in the playoffs. Now they have several months to make a trade. 
Maybe they'll make some upgrades during the season. Maybe some of these guys will take significant steps forward. Jaime Hawkins has a groin strain, but the Heat have been incredibly impressed with him so far, I think. I think he's got a chance to immediately play for them and have a role. Um, you know, Kyle Lowry has looked good by all accounts early on, like you said. I don't think – I'm not sure the expectation was he was going to start. I think he might start now. Um, so we'll – and, you know, Tyler Hero has talked a lot about being motivated coming in after a summer where his name was out there in all sorts of trade discussions uh, publicly. So I think betting against the heat has proven over time to be a fool's errand. So I would say I'm bullish on them being in the top six, but like you said, if you're looking at it in the macro terms and you're the Miami heat who basically look at things as winning a championship or not, I don't see them as a team that you can pencil in as being a likely threat to make the conference finals. And so they have work to do if they want to get to the level they're accustomed to between now and May. And yet, you, Tim Bontemps, hater of the Atlanta Hawks, just <laughs> said that you don't consider the Miami Heat a threat to make the conference finals. I understand that the two juggernauts in the East have completely revamped their teams and probably appear better on paper, or at least in Milwaukee's case, has, has definitely addressed the biggest weakness of their team, not just on paper yep. and reality. Yep. I understand that the landscape is different. The Heat have made the team that you just said is unlikely to challenge for the conference finals have been in the conference finals in three of the last four seasons. Oh, they've I'm been aware. In, they've been <laughs> in aware. the NBA finals in two of the last four seasons and in another one where one shot away from a third finals in four seasons, which is a long way of saying, I think this team is demonstrably a better playoff team than a regular season team. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't, as weird as their roller coaster to the finals was last year compared to what they did over the full dossier of 82 games. I, they are, again, it's not like they've never won more than 53 games in this four year stretch. They've only won the equivalent of more than 49 one time. And yet they keep doing this in the playoffs. If they keep doing it, they're telling us that something about the way they play, the way Jimmy and Bam play both ends of the floor, the way Eric Spolstra coaches, is better equipped for postseason success than regular season success. If they get in, I mean, they think, I don't even think they care if like freaking prime Luol Sindor and Oscar Robinson walk through that door. They are not scared of the Milwaukee Bucks. They think they can punk the Milwaukee Bucks anytime, yeah. any place, even though the Bucks punk them out of the 2021 playoffs. They're not scared of the Celtics. They're not scared of anybody. And I do think the more I look at this team, I mentioned their over under is 44 and a half. And I waffled a little bit when I had Pelton on the other day, I'm taking the over. I think they're a little better than maybe people think. Because all the focus, and we've been guilty of it too, has been on trade, trade, trade. Oh, too bad. They have to bring Tyler Hero back. These starters left the door. They actually are kind of deep. They're not sexy deep. They still, like you said, haven't gotten a, a big-time score to even just like a big-time number co-number two guy. Along with Bam, I guess Tyler Hero coming back is that guy. Um, and the Hero thing, so they didn't trade him. They didn't, they didn't really go for Bradley Beal. I think that was a vote of confidence in Tyler Hero. I think from what I heard, the Heat looked at that situation and said, we don't think Bradley Beal, who's, what, seven years older than Tyler Hero, is $30 million better than Tyler Hero going for. We just don't think the upgrade is worth it. 
The Dame situation was uh, they would have they would have traded him for Damian Lillard if they had gotten the chance. I'm not sure they made their best offer. I'm not sure they're given an opportunity to make their best offer. I don't care to revisit it. Doesn't Drew matter. Holiday, yeah. Drew Holiday came and went so fast. I'm not even sure what the specific dialogue was between the two teams. But like Tyler Hero's good, and if, if you project their starting five is let's say for now Lowry, Hero, Butler, Love. Because I do think they'll make Kevin Love sort of the token starter at the four. Not token. That's not fair. Starter at the four. And bam. And then off the bench, Josh Richardson. Maybe that becomes Kyle Lowry at some point. Duncan Robinson back in the rotation. Caleb Martin fixture. Thomas Bryant at backup center. And then you've got some combination of Hawkes, Highsmith. And I think we'll see Jovich play some four alongside Bam specifically because of his shooting and Bam's ability to protect him on defense. That's like a decent amount of guys and sometimes they're not going to get that deep because I think they're going to have to stagger Jimmy and Bam as much as possible in games that really matter it's like not it's it's not like it's a pretty solid team and just the last sort of bulwark of that is if you look at just Hero Butler Bam and Caleb Martin that foursome was plus 10 per 100 possessions in the regular season and about that good in the playoffs plus 100 points in 520 minutes. And just the hero Butler bam trio had a similar sort of fat number like that works. And that makes Kevin loves minutes kind of the rickety part of their starting five. Like we'll see how much he's able to play, but that's, I think that's a solid team. I don't know what, what it translates to in terms of postseason success, but I think they're going to win more than 44 and a half games. Yeah, I, I would guess that they do, too. I would take the over. I would bet on Eric Spolstra, and I would bet on their infrastructure. And like I said, they do have they, they have some intriguing young guys they're high on, and they are excited about having Josh Richardson back. And, like, look, I, I think they will have enough depth cobbled together that they'll be a pretty good team. And, again, like I said, last year, if you go back and look, I think I don't remember exactly what Max Drusen gave Vincent shot, but they shot poorly all season. Now is a huge part of why their offense was just really terrible for most of the season. So I do think having Duncan Robinson there will help a lot. Hero's a really good shooter. They'll, their offense will be better than 26. It might not be 10th, but I bet it's in the teens or the low 20s at the worst, and it won't be in the bottom five. And so they probably will be a pretty solid team. But again, I think when you look at where the East is compared to the early part of this decade it's in the top end is much stronger um when the heat got to the conference finals two years ago they avoided playing uh milwaukee or boston until then when they got there in uh the bubble in 2020 obviously that was a bit of a unique circumstance all the way around um so uh, they definitely are a better playoff team than a better than a regular season team. Jimmy Butler is in the top five guys you would want to have in a playoff series. Eric Spolstra is pretty much, I think, unequivocally considered the best coach in the league at this point. So you have all the pieces in place to make the kind of run that they have in the past, and maybe they will surprise again. But I just think ultimately, especially with the moves that Boston has made, I think the Celtics are the clear favorites to me to win the East and win the title. And I think with Dame in Milwaukee, even though I have some questions about their team, I do think, as you said, it does solve the biggest issue they had, particularly in that Miami series and they've had in the past, which is they don't really have a, the best theory of the case on offense late in games. Now the theory is give the ball to Dame and it's Dame time. That's a pretty good theory proven over time. So I think the challenge is much higher 
for Miami this year to get there without a deal. But I do think, like you said, ultimately, I think they're going to be better. And look, at the end of the day, yes, the Heat didn't get Damian Lillard. But the Heat, and I think rightly, are just waiting for the next guy to come along because they're always going to be a team. You could argue the two teams everybody's always going to want to play for are the Heat and the Lakers. And so the Heat are waiting for the next guy to come along. We'll see who it is. But at some point, they will get one of these guys to pair with their guys they have now, and they will be right in the mix like they have been. And we'll see if that happens over the next three months or if it takes till next summer or if it takes longer than that. I want to talk about Hero. You know, I said during the playoffs, as they put together win after win after win, that I thought they were they were they had become better off without Tyler Hero. I certainly don't think they would have made the finals if Tyler Hero was healthy. I will say that. Which is I not said, a criticism of Tyler Hero as a player. I think he's a very good player, but I think he has flaws in the playoffs that could be exploited. I, I said when rumors that he could maybe return at some point started bubbling up, I, I said, I, I kind of think they're, they're better off for now without reintroducing that. I was not alone in saying that. Lots of people said it was not like a, a scorcher from the Low Post podcast. <laughs> However, it did get back to a lot of people within the heat that I, among others, had said that. And I got some pushback, let's say. And what I said during that time was certain kind of unique things, unusual things happened during that playoff run that um, rendered Tyler Hero's absence less relevant than it might otherwise have been uh, and, and made it optimal that the Heat could replace him with better defensive players since if you, if you play Hero with Love, that's two big weak spots. If you play Hero with Robinson, which is something they've avoided here and there at least, that's two big weak spots. And the things that happened were, as you said, all of their shooters went crazy. So there's 50% of what Tyler Hero brings to the table taken care of by guys who are all significantly better defensive players than him. Jimmy Butler decided for about two-thirds of the playoffs, I can carry like a 38% usage rate and do it efficiently and not give back anything on defense. So absorbing like an extra half a player's, extra half a starter's usage rate, there's like 30% more of Tyler Hero's value sort of sopped up by other people. And all of a sudden, what he does is not as necessary and what he doesn't do the the his his weaknesses on defense are no longer present. It, 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 I think it made sense that like that particular team for that particular span of time didn't really need Tyler Hero. That's not to say the Miami Heat franchise, and it was never to say the Miami Heat franchise doesn't need Tyler Hero or that Tyler Hero is not good. Tyler Hero is very good. I think he's motivated and pissed off and is going to have a good season. And this team. With Struce gone and Vincent gone and Richardson in and young guys coming in who do not have proven track records, with Jimmy Butler getting older and if he's going to have that kind of usage rate in the playoffs, he needs some other people to help him along the first 82 games. This team needs Tyler Hero. And they also need him to rehabilitate his trade value a little bit. And I think he's going to have a good year. And I think he's like a good, I think he's a solid basketball player. My number one, not complaint, other than the defense was, I've always said this, I want him to be a little less 
hey, I want to run 40 pick and rolls a game and be the guy and shoot mid-range jumpers, and it's cool that he can do that and he's okay at it. I want him to be a little bit more Clay Thompson because he is an absolute knockdown elite shooter off the catch and even off the dribble, and I do feel like he passes up pretty good threes when he's bobbing and weaving behind Bam because he wants to do other stuff. And if he just took three or four shots a game that are twos and made them threes, I think that's better for him, and I think that's better for the Heat. Uh, And that's my Tyler Hero spiel. Yeah, look, Tyler Hero's a nice player. The Heat also were better off without him in the playoffs last year, and they were better off the year before in the conference finals when they played the Celtics and he got hurt in that series. And at the end of the day, when you're in the playoffs, the thing I've really come to believe more than anything over the past several years is the biggest thing you can do to enhance your chances of success is to avoid having any significant weaknesses at either end of the court. And Tyler is a very bad defensive player. There's like one team maybe that can do that. Yes, that's true. But he's a very bad defensive player and is a target for the elite teams to go after. Like that's just the way it is. Now, maybe if he was out there, things would have gone differently in the series in in the finals last year, or maybe they would have just went all the way through the playoffs and he would have been out there and it would have been fine. But I, again, both things can be true. You can be a guy that has a weakness that causes you problems in the playoffs and also be a very talented player who helps you win a lot of regular season games. I mean, on the hoop collective, we talk games. He's had, he's had moments, particularly in the bubble, in the bubble. He was great. Look, on the Hoop Collective, we talk a lot about Demonis Sabonis, right? One of Brian loves Demonis Sabonis. We talk about Sabonis all the time. Sabonis is a terrific player. This is a bit of a tangent, but Sabonis is a terrific player. But he has significant weaknesses that come up in the playoffs that are a big reason why his team's never got out of the first round. When he and he's consistently been a very productive player, a very good player, a deserving All NBA player. Like so, both things can be true. I mean, Tyler Hero averaged 25 and four and shot 38% from three last year and eight attempts a game. That's a very good player. He also had a PER of 15 or 14, six, which is average. So, you know, and again, I know PER is not quite the same stat in, in the ways that it was in the past, but I do think that sort of exemplifies the yin and the yang to what he provides to a team. Now, when we're talking right now about the Heat for the next 82 games, yeah, I think Tyler Hill is going to be a really valuable player and is going to help them win a lot of games. But the fact that Tyler Hero is a critical part of what they're doing, and he is a critical part, deservedly so, unless he takes really significant steps forward, if he's your third best player, I don't think your ceiling is that high. So that, and that's why the Heat were quite ready, totally justifiably, to turn him into... Damian Lillard or some other player. And by the way, I wouldn't have traded Tyler Hero in a package for Bradley Beal because I don't think if I'm the Heat, I would have cashed in my chips to trade for Bradley Beal when they have other guys that could come on down the road that they could get later who will have, I think, be better players than Bradley Beal. But that's the benefit that the Heat have that a lot of other teams don't. And so in the meantime, they're going to, like you said, they're betting on Tyler being better and motivated this year. And look, maybe Tyler will average... 25 and six this year and shoot 41% from three. And like you said, maybe he takes a couple less mid range jumpers a game and gets his three point rate up even higher and is an all-star this year. Like maybe he'll take another step forward. He's still super young. He's, he's a really talented player, but I, at the same time, I do think part of the reason I am skeptical about their ultimate ceiling is 
if you're relying on him, he has real flaws that elite teams in the playoffs can exploit. Sure. As do many small guards and perimeter players. And, you know, that's people said that about Jokic until it wasn't true anymore. Um, Right. But ultimately, look, the heat, the heat look at everything from the prism of winning a title or bust. Right. They're not they're not in the business of getting to the second round of the playoffs or getting to the conference finals. That's not they don't view that as a successful season, even if people think that it should be right. Even last year, they're the eight seed. They make the finals. Not that they didn't enjoy the run last year, but like, I think they're they actually disagree with you. I think they're I think they're very proud of their finals run. last I, year. I think they're proud. I'm not it. saying they're not. And proud they think they consider the, the season a success. Well, maybe I, I, I obviously they're proud of making the finals and they're proud of making the finals in the bubble, but their standard is trying to win a fourth title. So I'm looking at this through the prism of, is this group good enough to get there? And if not, why not? And that, so that's why, that's why I'm viewing it that way. I think the idea of hero on this team is if at go time, we have Butler, we have Bam, we have Martin, and whatever defensive point guard you want, Josh Richardson, who's super long for the position, and Kyle Lowry, who's just a human fire hydrant with arms and legs, and you can't move him. Right. We can we can give him enough coverage that it's not that damaging, and his offense will sink for us. We'll see. I'm going over on 44 and a half, and I have I like I thought Milwaukee was gonna wipe them out in the playoffs last year, and that they were my pick to win the title the whole year. The Heat were not good the whole year. Look, the Heat were down 20 points in the fourth quarter of game four and game five. They had Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo on the bench for the first four minutes of game five, down 16, and the the Bucs didn't score for the first five minutes of the quarter. I was at the game. I will never forget being at the game. It was one of the strangest games I've ever been at. It was unbelievable. And Giannis got hurt in the first And Giannis got hurt, and Caleb Martin shot 70% in the conference finals. And Hero got hurt. It was... It was the strangest, it was the strangest, most remarkable run you they could have had. But I they will absolutely never, maximize what they were. I will I will never I'm gonna say I will never count them out of a series. The Heat, if they're healthy, and part of their obstacle is that Jimmy Butler is gonna miss 20 games every year, and then they're gonna sure. have to tread water in those games in a regular season. If they're in the playoffs healthy, I am never going to do the thing where you're where you pick a series and it's like oh it's 4-1 for the other team 4-2 for the other team and you just move on you don't you it's like this is this is a move on like nothing they do will surprise me at this point their core guys are that good and that tough and that rock solid and I think this team it feels disappointing like they've taken a big step back and they're in trouble and and yes the two juggernauts at the top have upgraded I think this team's pretty good Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? Full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. 
with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Let's talk about the other team that has taken a step somewhere. I don't know, maybe into dog poop. The 76ers. Um... We mentioned before, uh, we'll see if James Harden plays on Monday in Brooklyn in the preseason game. If he does not, I think that's um, time to time to raise some alarm bells if they're not already screaming loud that this could become an issue. Um, the team now has um, a whole bunch of new guys on the bench. Kelly Oubre, Pat Beverly, Danny Green is here again and playing kind of well for a guy who looked like his career might be sliding away from him um Mo Bamba's here Jaden Springer is a year older Korkmaz is back in the corking around in the mix again Paul Reed is now cemented in as the backup center Doc Rivers' favorite backup center Paul Reed and is going to play alongside Joel Embiid according to Nick Nurse here and there okay Paul Reed is three for 20 on threes for his career 0 for 3 in the postseason we'll see um the weird again like this team with James Harden trying hard for a coach that he ultimately didn't want to be coached by anymore, was up 3-2 with a home game against Boston in the in the conference semis to make its first conference final since the Allen Iverson Zach, they were winning the game with six I was at minutes the game. to go. I know. Uh, and then Joel Embiid, then they forgot Joel Embiid was on the team. <laughs> Joel, Joel, Embiid, Embiid Joel Embiid forgot that he was on the team. Uh, he might have left the building. Oh. He might have gone to the bathroom. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> my, my, my point is... Like it's like it's only the Sixers. Like yes, yes Milwaukee is a, a different and probably better team. Yes, Boston is a different and probably better team. If the Sixers were just functional and normal, and James Harden was on the team in a fully engaged manner, yeah, you might slot them third in the East to start with and say, hey, you know they've got a lot of questions to answer. Why is Joel Embiid always hurt in the playoffs? Why is his production not the same? James Harden had two good playoff games out of eleven, and blah blah blah. Like, if this were a normal team, you would say, hey, there's no reason why they're not an inner circle championship contender. Like, they might not, they might be underdogs in a seven game series against both those teams, but not underdogs where it would be like a whale of an upset for them to win. They're, they're like a great team. And now you have to sit here and project two different teams the one with James Harden on it playing hard, or three really, the dream one with James Harden on it playing hard. The, the one with James Harden on it not playing that hard, and I don't even know if he's even playing in that scenario, and then the one where he doesn't play at all, and they have to, until they trade him, just have a zero from him and probably promote DeAnthony Melton into the starting five, revamp their bench and all of that. How are you thinking about this team, and like how good are they if they do have to go through 30, 40, whatever games with Harden as a zero and not having traded him yet? 
Well, there's a whole lot to say about the Sixers, but let's start with the last part. I think there's two paths for the Sixers and James Harden. I think one path is he plays and is engaged and plays for them. And I think the other is he doesn't. I think if, if there's some scenario where it's anything like the infamous Sacramento game in Brooklyn or the games after the first game he played that last year in Houston before he got traded to the Nets, I suspect he'll just be sent home. Gone. I don't think yeah, you're benched. Yeah, you're there, so there's not to me. It's either one. It's either he's good and engaged or he's not there. So I think those are the two paths. Now, as far as where the Sixers stand, I was with them last week in Fort Collins, Colorado, Colorado State, where they went to training camp. And it was very strange. Because the whole time, both at Media Day and then in Colorado, everyone was just waiting for the other shoe to drop and for something weird to happen with James or some, you know, some controversy to erupt. And as of now, on Thursday afternoon, on the 12th of October, there's been none of that. He's been around the team for over a week. He's been totally engaged. He looks really good in everything I've seen, the limited time I've seen him on the court working out, everything internally talking to people with the Sixers. He looks great. He's in great shape. Looks engaged. But nobody's smiling really smiling sure a this. lot. He's smiling. Well, look, smiling look, a lot. Yeah, he is. And not lockers, talking to, lockers clean. Not talking to Daryl Morey, but otherwise engaged. And look, no, but nobody knows how long that's going to last or what's going to happen. Or whether he's going to play whether he's going to play on Monday. Again, like back to that, right? Like is he going to play? I don't know. Maybe. So it's an incredibly strange circumstance to look at this team and not know if one of the pillars of the team is going to actually be on the court or not. Now, if you look at this group overall, I think there's a lot of similarities between this team and the team Nick Nurse took over in Toronto. A team that when he took over had repeatedly failed in the playoffs, often in embarrassing fashion, as you know, uh, as a Toronto partisan, as you are. Uh, they had all sorts of disappointing playoff exits. LeBronto. A history to overcome. LeBronto. Le- LeBronto. Right? And they had Kawhi Leonard there, who when Nick Nurse got the job and then they traded for Kawhi, they had no idea if Kawhi Leonard was going to play or what he would look like or whether he would stay at home or whatever was going to happen because he wanted to also, ironically, be on the Clippers like James Harden. And you looked at the whole situation and it was like, well... The Raptors took this swing. They sort of have this year to go for it. We'll see what happens. And at that time, that was the year I started ESPN. And the two teams that were picked to be at the top of the East were the Sixers with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, who just got to the second round with those guys basically in their first playoff run. And the Celtics, who had Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Al Horford, they were supposed to dominate everybody. And obviously, by the end of that season, the two best teams were Milwaukee and Toronto playing in the conference finals and Toronto Man. went on to beat them and win the championship. We could do a two hour. What if on the Gordon Hayward season opening leg injury in Cleveland, we will not do that now, but yeah, I, that was I, the year I, that was I the think year about before, that, but yeah. no, but I'm saying like, I, I think about that and how that changed the dynamics of the Celtics in the entire Eastern conference. Like once, once a week, I'll just be laying in bed thinking about Gordon Hayward, which as I say, it is not does that sound it's, it's a strange thing to say, but I know what yeah. you mean, because it is one of the more important moments of the past 10 or 15 years in the NBA, and it doesn't get talked about enough. But that all being said, to your point, you put all that together, the Sixers have a ton of talent. They have a coach in Nick Nurse who's a proven tactician in the playoffs who might be able to boost them in some ways where they haven't been able to get, get forward in the past. They've got the MVP of the league. 
They've got the guy who led the league in assists last year. They've got Tyrese Maxey, who looks like he could be a, well, I mean, if assuming James Harden is playing in this scenario, they've got uh, Tyrese Maxey, who certainly looks incredible early in the preseason. I think he's got a chance to be an all-star this year. They've got versatile defensive players around them. They've got Tobias Harris, who's a very solid two-way player on the wing now. has become a pretty solid defensive player after struggling that in that part of his game earlier in his career. They have a really good, deep team that would be right there in the mix at the top of the East if, as you said, you knew James Harden was going to be playing. But instead, it's the Sixers who are constantly in an absolute state of chaos, and they are in a state of chaos again, except right now it's this frozen animation state of chaos where everyone's just sort of waiting for the train to go off the tracks, and to this point it hasn't. And maybe it just won't. I don't know, but I don't think James Harden is getting traded to the Clippers anytime soon. I don't think he's getting traded anywhere anytime soon. Uh, and so if as long as he's on the team, he sort of has two choices. One is to play and be engaged, and one is to do something else and go home. And I don't know which way this is going to go. At least the white party was awesome. Looked like a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, that's the other weird part about this is like he gets along with, I mean, the vast majority of the people around the team he's fine with. So it, like it's just, time. it just was the oddest. It was, it's been very odd being around them for the past week and a half because it's just, it's just been a lot of strange vibes, but then again, it's Sixers. So everything is strange. Didn't get the invite. Didn't get the invite to the white party. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Um, only the Sixers. That really should just become their slur. By the way, those the Sixers, you one could argue, and in fact, I will now argue, they don't have a signature playoff series win, series win, not individual game win, series win since they made the finals with Allen Iverson. What? What? Give me a memorable playoff series that they've won in the last. I mean, the most years. memorable playoff series they've won was when Derrick Rose got hurt. Doesn't count. Derrick Rose. No, I'm not. Hurt. I'm not. The I'm whole not. World, even Spencer Hall, was Spencer Hawes even on the team? Am I making that up? Even Spencer Hawes was not on the team. <laughs> May not have been on the team. Even Evan Turner and Drew Holiday. No, like we would have. Won, we're not winning that playoff series if Derrick Rose doesn't get hurt yeah. in Game One. No, but that's what I mean. That's and the then most this memorable this year is when they have this era, and it's partly because they're a high seed every year, and it's partly what we're really seeing is they haven't gotten over the hump in the second round. It's just a parade of like. Bad Nets, bad Wizards, Heat without J- pre Jimmy Butler, and the Sixers had you. It's just like a to- uh, just a forget. Last year the Nets were like triple teaming Embiid at half court because they had no other answer for him. They don't have a, like I don't know, but I don't. Even the know signature oh. moments of their playoff series wins the last few years are Joel having unfortunate injuries, him hurting his oh. knee last year when Cam Johnson fell into him in Brooklyn, when Pascal hit him in the face with an elbow in. Uh, in garbage time, almost in, in garbage. It not almost. It was definitely in garbage time in Toronto. Like those are the signature moments from their playoff series victories the past few years. Joel Embiid regular season career: twenty-seven points, eleven rebounds, three and a half assists, three and a half turnovers, fifty percent shooting, thirty-four percent on threes, fifty-four percent on twos, twenty-seven point nine player efficiency rating. Joel Embiid in the playoffs. 24 points a game, 11 rebounds, 2.8 assists, 3.6 turnovers, 46% shooting, 28% on threes, 51% on twos, 21.9 PER, 27.9 regular season, 21.9.
playoffs. Health has played a large part of that. He also just hasn't played well enough. Here's what the Sixers have going for them in this non-Harden universe. I would assume they start the season Maxi, Melton, Tucker, Harris, Embiid. I think there's a chance at some point in the season the P.J. Tucker starting thing becomes a discussion if he just is a zero on offense again. Obviously, we know what he can do defensively. Guys like that are generally better used as starters because they get the guard, the best players on the other team. We'll see. Uh, off the bench, that leaves me, I'm assuming I got to stagger Maxi and Embiid in most games. Then I'm just sort of juggling your Beverly's, Houses, Paul Reed's, and then whoever out of Oubre, Green, whatever, wins minutes and maybe it changes night to night. That's a solid team. Last season... Maxi Embiid on the floor, Harden off the floor. Have you looked up these numbers? 123 points per 100 possessions, 110.6 allowed, plus 12 in about almost 500 minutes. That's your yeah. reason for optimism right there. Those two yeah. guys with supporting talent around them might be just damn good enough to not just keep you afloat until the Harden thing resolves. But to actually make you maintain a level of like really goodness while that happens, this is my favorite Tyrese Maxi stat, and I agree with you. This dude is poised for something like All Star is completely on the table. Like, and he, he could average twenty five a game, like you said, with James Harden on the floor. Tyrese Maxi ran fifteen pick and rolls per one hundred possessions. It's like a like a good, like a good role player kind of thing, secondary wing, whatever. I don't have the comps in front of me. DeAndre right. Hunter might do that. I don't know. Yep. Second DeAndre Hunter mention. Uh, with James Harden on the bench, so it was 15 on the floor. With James Harden on the bench, 58 pick and rolls per 100 possessions. That's like Trey Young, Chris Paul, almost Luka level of volume. And he held up more than well at that level of volume. As I have said before, I, that split is unusual to the point of being a total anomaly. There is not a player who whose role changes that dramatically based simply on the presence or absence of a teammate. I think he's ready for 58 pick and rolls per 100 possessions as long as Embiid is the screener on like 40 of them. Um, I, he, I, the best thing the Sixers have going for them now, tomorrow, probably in five years, is Tyrese Maxey. Look, I think if you told me right now that James Harden was banished and not on the team this year, I would 100% guarantee Tyrese Maxey's making the all-star team if he was healthy. I think Joel Embiid has been on record as saying he would be motivated to make Tyrese Maxey an all-star this year, which I don't think would be a small part in that. But it's also, as you said, I think Tyrese Maxey is ready to do that. And as you said, he is maybe the fastest guy in the league with the ball in his hands or either way, but especially with the ball in his hands, might be faster than De'Aaron Fox. He just he is like a streak of lightning down the court every time. And Nick Nurse wants him to be pushing in transition all the time. The other thing I'll say as a bit of a hot take is I think Ooh. you make a decent argument that the Sixers could be better off even this year having De'Anthony Melton next to Tyrese Maxey than having James Harden and Tyrese Maxey together. Because I think having De'Anthony Melton, a very good defensive guard, perpetually underrated guy next to Maxi guard, the best defender on the other team. It's a solid spot up three point shooter shot near 40% last year from three, I believe. Um, I think that fit is much better. And then to your point, you're just giving the ball to Tyrese Maxi for 35 minutes a game and letting them go. 
And so I, I would be more than fine with that if I was the Sixers. And to your point, the best, the Sixers have set themselves up right now to go into next summer with these two max salary slots in theory to pursue star players to play next to Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey. That's why they're not going to give Tyrese Maxey this extension, right? Well, the best way to sell yourselves as a destination next summer is to have Tyrese Maxey become a bona fide star this year and elevate himself into the discussion with guys like LaMelo Ball and Tyrese Halliburton and these other young rising point guards around the league and be like, hey, yeah, James Harden's gone, but come play here with Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey. Name your star wing slash, you know, power forward free agents that we can come into slot next to these guys on the perimeter. And then with those four guys, you hope to be right there with teams like Milwaukee and Boston next year to compete for a title. Like that's the, that's the argument. If you're trying to make it, if you're the Sixers. So I think the sooner they can get to that, the better. Now I also wouldn't trade James Harden for a minimal return, which I think right now is what's on the table, but I, I I'm with you. I think Tyrese Maxey looks ready to go and I would be, trying my damnedest if I was the Sixers to turn the team over to him as fast as humanly possible, because that is the path to them getting where they want to go. Ultimately, like we were just talking about with Tyler hero, obviously I think Maxi is a higher level player than hero because of the, some of the things he could do athletically around another level. But if he has all these reps this year with the ball, that gives him a chance to maybe take a leap to another level than he is now. And that is the way I think this team gets to championship contention. Um, now if you, if you told me James Harden was totally bought in this year, and was going to be around and everything he was, it was going to be like Kawhi and he was going to play it all out this year. Then yeah, I probably would swing on it because I do think with James out there, they've got a shot, but if it's anything less than that, I would be trying to get it to Tyrese as much as possible and turn this team over to him. Cause like you said, going forward, that's the guy with Joel that this team is going to be built around. And it's part of the reason that they'll be able to convince Joel that he should stick around there if, if they're able to. Well, in talking about Melton, you just nailed sort of the ultimate dilemma of the team, which is can they defend well enough with Maxie and Harden on the floor? And not only that, but you know, the trickle down effect of that was always, well, Tobias Harris is having to guard guys that, you know, probably not that he's not qualified to guard them. He's, he's a little overstretched defensively guarding some of the guys he had to guard. And so then you have to have Tucker on the floor, which hit, you know, hits your offense a little bit. And I always liked the lineup of Maxi Harden, Melton, Harris, Embiid. Um, But, you know, defensively, they just, I I think they thought it was too small. Maybe didn't have quite enough length in it, whatever. But, uh, and and then you just hit the, the needle that they're trying to thread here, which is salvaging this season while maintaining the flexibility to upgrade with cap space in the offseason, either via trade or via signing free agents, while also all along having Joel Embiid be like, yep, we're good enough that I'm content. That is, that's like three needles to thread at the same time. And, and by the way, like Drew Holiday was going to be one of their free agency targets. The odds of him hitting the open market just went down significantly. You know, you can care or not about what Kawhi and Paul George are saying about how much they want to stay with the Clippers and they came here to be Clippers. And until the ink is dry on a contract, they're potential free agents. But if they're true to their word and the Clippers are true to their word and the Clippers have a good season this year, 
you start to go down the line of like, who exactly are we getting with this Cavs? And there are other guys, the Raptors guys, we've talked about it before. But I do agree with you. Like, I, I don't think this is a, a bluff by the Sixers in terms of we're not trading James Harden for a return that we deem unsatisfactory and getting us a James Harden level player via trade or via this direct trade. Um, I think they're prepared to wait until at least December 15th when the league's trade market really opens up because all the players who signed in the offseason or most of them become trade eligible again. Until, until then, newly signed free agents are not trade eligible. And I honestly think like if Maxi and Embiid are healthy, they'll be pretty much okay win-loss-wise in that span. It's more like vibes-wise if James isn't playing and Milwaukee's 25-5 and five and Boston's 25-5 and five and Philly's 18-12. and 12, you know, um, what are the, what's the mood around the team going to be? That's, that's well, the look, bigger concern. Yeah. I mean, look, two years ago, Tyrese Maxey was handed the ball to start a training camp by Doc Rivers when Ben Simmons wasn't there and was like, you're the point guard of the team, right? He's a significantly better player now than he was then. They didn't have DeAnthony Melton on that team. And Joel, I think, is a better player now than he was then. Made, you know, at least slight improvements to his game. That team won 51 games with James Harden not showing up until mid-February and then working his way in over the next six weeks, right? So I think this team could win more than 51 games if they don't have James Harden around at all this year. Now, again, it's sort of a, it's sort of a similar discussion to what we talked about with Miami in that, I think this team could win a lot of regular season games, be a really good team, finish somewhere in the top three or four in the East. Uh, and then they're going to get to the playoffs and their top end is probably not going to be good enough to once again, get out of the second round. And we'll be back talking about the Sixers in a similar vein that we have been in the past next summer when they go into the summer and try to thread this needle and, and improve the roster and, and free agency, like you said, either by a trade or signing guys. But, I do think the team is going to be really good. And if their two main guys are healthy, like they're going to score a ton of points and they're going to win a lot of games. So, you know, it with all the noise around the Sixers, it's very easy to forget. And everyone is guilty of doing so how good this team is and has been for years now, but it just comes along with so much noise and controversy and drama that it sort of gets overshadowed that they are always winning 50-ish games and they're always one of the top two or three seeds in the East and they're always in the mix to advance in the playoffs and then they get to the second round and they don't. So, you know, it's fitting that we're once again having the same conversation about this team that could win it, could win the East, could be right there, but has all this drama. Will they be able to resolve it? Will they not? What will they do? I mean, it it's going on five years being around this team on a regular basis. And it's been the exact same thing the entire time. Well, with all sorts of other shenanigans thrown in Twitter accounts, shirt collars. Oh no, I mean, there's always controversy and drama. The, 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 the explanations for why it's happening always change, but the constant is there's never peace and quiet. There's always chaos and there's chaos again now. Well, um, we shall see what happens, but it, it, these two teams, Miami and Philadelphia, are uh, about to embark on a basketball season as basketball teams as they are currently constructed, and it was time to have a discussion about them as currently constructed. We will see how long they maintain their current forms, but 
the season is starting, and Damian Lillard is not walking through that door. Drew Holiday is not walking through that door, and uh, any door, either door. And James Harden is, and the Sixers are trying to find a door. <laughs> Everything, everything's locked. The knob, the they're, knob they're, fell all, off. Blake all the Griffin's, doors are gone. Blake Griffin's chair is barricading the door. Whatever is happening. Tim Bontemps, uh, you can hear him on the Hoop Collective. You can read him after lots of games in the Eastern Conference. Uh, he's got something up seemingly every day on goodoldespn.com. Let's go Mets. Thank you, sir. Of course, man. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats Rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Let's preview another Eastern Conference team. We haven't talked much about the Cleveland Cavaliers. And to do that, one of the best guys covering a team anywhere in the NBA of Cleveland.com. Chris Fedor, how are you, sir? Zach, I'm great, man. How are you? I'm hanging in. So let's review. The Cavaliers traded a whole boatload of draft picks for Donovan Mitchell. The Utah Jazz are sitting there owning all the Cavaliers' first-round picks pointedly from 2025 to 2029. They won 51 games behind a quartet of Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen. Donovan Mitchell made first-team All-NBA, I think, correct? I voted him first-team All-NBA. Second team. Oh, second team. Well, so again, the, the awards just go in and out of my... I voted him first-team. Um, some, some other people apparently did not. Uh, and... They had the number one defense in the NBA, the number seven offense, the number two net rating, and all it got them was an ass-kicking in the first round of the playoffs at the hands of the brutalizing, rebounding New York Knicks, and all that got them now is a whole lot of pressure on this season, more pressure than you would typically face for a, a young, rising team. Because looming all over all this is Donovan Mitchell's potential extension. He's eligible for one now. He's already said he's not going to sign one now, maybe in the offseason. Um, seldom do you see a team that is young. And they're not all in because the the disaster scenario where they, they kind of flame out again this year. Mitchell signals maybe he'd want to leave. Mitchell does end up leaving. Again, this is the disaster scenario. I'm not saying it's mm. going to happen, likely to happen, 10% likely. To, I'm not saying any probability on it at all. I'm just saying it is a scenario. They still have Darius Garland and Evan Mobley at least. And that was one of the reasons they jumped all in for Donovan Mitchell because they feel like we are insulated from a Brooklyn Nets-style disaster. Oh, my God, we're coughing up top five picks because this trade went haywire. But there is a lot of pressure on this team to erase – what happened in the postseason. They doubled and tripled down on putting shooting around the two big men because their offense just could not function. It was just strangled in cramped space. So Max Struess in, likely starting. George Niang in, key backup big man. Isaac Okoro's future, uncertain. They're playing fast. They were last in pace <laughs> last year, Chris Fudor. I forgot about that. They want to play fast and fly and shoot early threes. What are the early returns What's the mood around the team? How have they 
how have they in camp talked about the fallout from that playoff series and how they are going to pivot away from it? Because it, it was bad. It was bad. And I think everybody would admit it was bad too, Zach. Um, players, coaches, front office members, they all look at the season kind of in two separate ways, right? 51 wins, one of the best regular seasons that they've had in the last decade. Um, the best regular season, obviously, that they've had since the LeBron James era. A lot of positive things that they got out of that regular season. A lot of positive things that they were able to learn about themselves in that regular season. But you mentioned it. The 4-1 non-competitive playoff series against the Knicks where they got manhandled and they led for 49 total minutes. That's it in those five games. And I'm, surprised it was, I'm surprised. It was, I kind of thought you were going to say 49 total seconds. <laughs> well, they won one of those games, so it's a little bit skewed. More skewed than people would realize. They know that they just didn't play their best basketball, and they know that they had some flaws that were exposed by the Knicks in that series, and they hope that they went out this offseason and they addressed them. They believe that they're more ready for a playoff series because they went through it. They saw it. They understand what it takes, what's going to be required. Like they got the experience. Evan Mobley got the experience he needed. Darius Garland got the experience he needed. Jared Allen got a little bit more playoff experience, which was also needed. So, you know, two different ways to look at the season. Now they come into a season, Zach, where – they know they're good. They know they've taken the steps that they've needed to take in the regular season. Their judgment now comes in the postseason. And everybody is talking about how they're going to use what happened against the Knicks as fuel and as a lesson. And it's all about putting that together now. How are they characterizing and how would you characterize what happened to their offense during the playoffs. And and obviously stuff happened to their defense too, including Mitchell Robinson getting every available offensive <laughs> rebound for the Knicks and just absolutely punking Jared Allen. But I ask because all the, fo a lot of the focus has been on what well, can they play these two bigs together? Yeah. The, the spacing was just so cramped. You know, they'd bl the Knicks would blitz Garland and Mitchell. Evan Mobley would roll into open space or Jared Allen would roll into open space, except it wasn't open. There were just too many bodies everywhere. Evan Mobley couldn't make a floater to save his life. The interior passing lanes weren't there. I think one of the things they learned is they simply cannot play a Coro, Mobley, and Allen together. Mm -hmm. It just does not work. But um, in all the attention on the big men and the spacing, it I, I feel like it's gotten lost that Donovan and Mitchell shot 43% in the playoffs and 29% from three. Darius Garland shot 44% from the playoff for the play in that series, 39% from three, but 47% on twos. Um, they averaged almost eight turnovers combined between them. Like they did not play well, right. and, well enough. And I realized that all of those things interact, right? Like if you can clog the lane on the big guys and the other three guys on the floor, things get more difficult for the guards. They end up having to take some four shots at the end of the shot clock. But I also wonder like, how are the Cavs digesting all this? Because this is, like, you will run into matchups, regardless of who the big men are, where an undersized backcourt as explosive and talented and creative, and Garland is one of the most creative passers and ball handlers in the league, underrated, I think, in that regard. They just run into defenses that are bigger, longer, and force them into into just taking really difficult shots. Like, how how is the whole... For, 
yes, the big men, there was a lot of focus on that, but how is how have they navigated the whole sort of ecosystem of what happened to their offense? I think the way that they're looking at it, Zach, is we're going to try and make things easier on Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Because I think even though the Cavs had a top 10 offense in the regular season, they also had flaws. Everybody knew what those flaws was. Not enough shooting, not enough spacing, too much of a cramped court. Like going into that series against the Knicks, there was a legitimate question about what were the Cavs going to do at starting small forward? Are they going to start Isaac Okoro? Are they going to start um, Karis LeVert? Are they going to go back to Lamar Stevens? <laughs> like, what are they going to do there to Je- try and Jetty Osmond was the main character Jetty. in the only game that they won in that series. That's right. Are they going to start Jetty Osmond and get a little bit more spacing and some off ball movement and stuff like that? So Danny Green played. <laughs> in the playoffs you're right that was a real thing it was a real thing they knew going into that series zach that new york was going to put a ton of pressure on darius and donovan and they were going to commit a lot of attention to slowing those guys down and they thought at some points that they were going to have enough to combat that they were excited to use evan mobley in four on three situations and see if they could tap into his playmaking and his passing He looked like he wasn't ready for the moment. Everything was moving a little bit too fast for him. So when they started setting screens with Evan and he was getting the pass as the outlet and he wasn't making the right decisions, the Cavs were like, oh boy, now what are we going to do here to adjust to that sort of thing? So if you think about this offseason just as a whole, like yes, Darius and Donovan are great. They're the engines of the offense, but it's all about trying to disguise, diversify, and make things easier on those guys. Max Struess being in that starting lineup is going to create more space, more driving lanes for them. The attention that the Knicks paid on Darius and Donovan sending that extra defender, teams are going to think twice about doing that because of the shooting that surrounds, because of the element of Max Struess and the attention that he commands from an opposing defense. And then they're trying to use Evan Mobley more as an offensive hub so that they can take Darius and Donovan off the ball so that eyes can't just be focused on them in a static position, right? They're trying to push the pace and get easier baskets and make quicker decisions in half court situations so that they can't just bog down and then have Darius and Donovan have to go and create something out of nothing. So everything as weird as this sounds, because Darius and Donovan are so great on their own, Everything has been designed to try and make things easier on those guys so that offense isn't as much of a chore and they don't have to carry as much of a burden. As you're saying all that, the word that started buzzing in my head was unpredictable. Mm-hmm. I thought their offense was just way too predictable. Just yeah. high pick high pick and roll, high pick and roll, high pick and roll. And when you give a smart, well-coached defensive team uh, the same thing over and over yep. again. They're just going to be too good unless your spacing is just outrageously good. And this was the opposite scenario. And you mentioned putting the ball in Mobley's hands. Like I mentioned that during the playoff series, I, I think so. So unpredictable means sometimes we're just going to run like hell and take an early three or yeah. see what we can get in semi transition. Like yeah. they didn't do enough of that. Um, sometimes it might mean, and this is what I mentioned, put the ball in Mobley's hands and have Garland and Mitchell screen for each other and run those like warrior style split actions. Not every time, but like once every six possessions, throw it in there instead of the same pick and roll over and over again, run it on the left side, swing it to the right side. Have if, if Jared Allen setting the screen, have, 
have Garland smash his guy with the screen on the way up to Donovan Mitchell to get the defense disrupted. Like there just wasn't enough. And like, honestly, saying all this, we've been focused on the players. I think this is a big year for J.B. Bickerstaff, too. I think it is. Um, And every judgment for J.B., too, just like when it comes to the Cavs, is going to be about how he handles the playoff environment. Can he look better in a seven-game series? Can he make the adjustments quicker? Can he make um, better in-game decisions the way that Tom Thibodeau did? I think JB would be the first one to admit, and the Cavs have come out and said it as well. They were outplayed in that series, no doubt about it. They were outmuscled in that series, no doubt about it. But they were outcoached in that series as well. The Knicks had a clear edge on their sidelines that the Cavs could do nothing um, to make up for. So it's a big, big big season for JB. I think it's a big season for the organization as a whole, but JB specifically. And if Zach, they do not get out of the first round of the playoffs, if they do not take another step as an organization, given everything that they've invested into this roster, given all the resources that they gave up in order to get Donovan Mitchell, changes are going to happen. I don't know what those look like. Um, I don't know what that is ultimately going to mean. There are a lot of factors in play, but a first-round playoff exit will not be tolerated. Well, you know, Perk, I think, has mentioned on NBA Today that anything short of the conference finals is a disappointment for the Cavs. And I keep pushing back on that and being like, Perk, that means they might have to beat, like, Boston or Milwaukee Milwaukee, in the second round of the playoffs. I think that is um, an optimistic scenario. I do think... Again, it's rare to say this about a team so young. Depending on health and where they end up being seeded and all that, they have to win a first-round playoff series. Unless they get some weird scenario where one of these, like Harden comes back 30 games left in the season and the Sixers are somehow like a random six seed or just something crazy. The Miami just sort of crawl, does the Miami crawl into the playoffs and just all of a sudden Jimmy Butler hits four threes a game and they're a totally different team. So there are mitigating scenarios, but if it's a matchup like it was last year against a team that is was frankly beatable, I picked right. the Cavs to win that series. They have to win a playoff series because I do think regardless of all this, I think these guys are going to win a lot of regular season games. I just, I just think they're deep. They're loaded. They have four really good players, notwithstanding what happened to Jared Allen in the postseason and his current – he has an ankle injury, right? Yeah, bone bruise in his ankle, yep. I, I think, like, they're a pretty good bet for 50-plus wins a, a, again, and it's almost a tribute to them that they're going to win 50-plus games, get the third or fourth seed, and no one is going to care until we see what they look like in the playoffs. They should almost take that as a compliment, frankly. Yeah. It's interesting, Zach, because – You can't make too much about what you see in training camp and in the preseason, but they seem committed to these changes stylistically that we've all talked about that they need to make so that they're better equipped to handle a seven game series in the first preseason game against Atlanta. They pushed the pace. They ran after misses and makes they had 24 fast break points, a number that they topped just twice in 82 games last season, right? They took 48 threes in the first preseason game. Their most in a game last year was 50. Evan Mobley being as involved as he was offensively, getting the number of touches that he got in that game against Atlanta, he just wasn't used that same kind of way 
uh, throughout the course of the regular season. They had 30 assists on 40 made shots. There was like ball movement, cutting. They ran some sets with Max Struess and Donovan Mitchell together, Max Struess, Darius Garland together. Even last night in their second preseason game against Orlando, they put Donovan at one elbow, Evan Mobley at the other elbow. They put George Niang in the corner, Max Struess in the other corner, and they ran a Darius Garland back cut for a wide open layup. Like those kinds of offensive actions are now going to be available to them. The style that they're hoping to play offensively is now going to be available to them because of the personnel that they have. Like they ran so much pick and roll last year and they became so predictable offensively last year, Zach, because that was their best path to offensive success, right? Darius and Donovan are elite pick and roll players. Jared Allen's an elite pick and roll big. They don't have bigs like Joel Embiid and Jokic where you could just run the offense through them over and over and over again and have it be diverse enough that it is going to attack a defense the way that it needs to. They didn't have like great cutters, great off-ball movers like Steph and Clay and some of these other guys around the NBA. So they did, in large part, what their personnel dictated them doing on the offensive end of the floor. Um, now they have different personnel. Now they can vary their lineups. Now they can vary their looks. And they believe the Cavs knew deep down that they were a flawed team and some of those things could have been exposed in the playoffs. And they knew that if they ran into the wrong matchup, it probably wasn't going to go well for them. Now this front office and this organization feels like the changes that they needed to make stylistically and with the personnel have been made. They addressed many of their flaws and they believe now they're good enough to win a first round playoff series. So with that belief in mind, if they don't, it's going to be a huge disappointment, a huge slap in the face. And that's where, like you said, change is definitely going to come. So you mentioned how they looked in the preseason so far. I watched the Hawks, half yeah. the Hawks game. I'm not going to commit to a full preseason Cavs-Hawks <laughs> till I'm just not, not going to do it. Um, but, you know, I've, underlying everything you're saying is because Jared Allen's hurt, Evan Mobley's playing center yeah. essentially every minute he's on the floor with four perimeter players and sometimes four shooters around him. And the numbers suggest um, the Mobley-Allen duo was fantastic in the regular season last year. Didn't work in the playoffs. The numbers also suggest um, lineups with just one of them. So Allen at center, no Mobley. Mobley at center, no Allen. were also both very good, although the Mobley ones wobbled a little bit on the glass. And I think um, the reason I didn't end up voting Evan Mobley defense player of the year, I came very close, was I, I think he the physicality of of some players, some bigger players, yeah. not even just centers, was a little much for him on the glass and in interior. And like he's just he's just not quite at that all position. It doesn't even matter. You have me guarding level of a Jaron Jackson Jr., which is fine. He's was twenty one years old or whatever last year. Mm-hmm. I am wondering, and again, Allen's injury has sort of complicated this question. Are we going to see less of them together and more of them separated with like a George Niang at the four, even a Struess at the four? Are they going to go all in on shooting to that level? I think it's going to depend on the matchup. I think it's going to depend on the situation. But I'll say this, Zach. I think they they believe that they're better equipped to do that, right? I think if you go back to last year and you say to yourself, well, split up Jared and Al. 
uh, and Evan, because you need more spacing, you need more shooting. Then you have to come back and say, okay, then who are you going to go to? If you move Evan Mobley to the five, who are you going to go to at the four? Are you going to go with Lamar Stevens? Like Kevin Love, who was playing as bad as any player in the NBA before getting bought out by the Cavs. Dean Wade, who started off great, then got hurt, and then Don't wasn't make me healthy. do the jingle. Don't make me do the Dean Wade jingle that has captivated the nation. I can't, you know what? I can't do the jingle. I can't do the jingle Not until right he's back in the rotation. That's that's exactly right. You know, it was tough mentally for him with Kevin leaving in the buyout and he wasn't the 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 way that he needed to be physically. Um, and I think that that hurt his confidence, both of he those a, factors. He had a sh- shoulder injury, some kind of yeah, injury, right? Yeah, shoulder was wrecked and it was to a point, Zach, where he just like couldn't lift it to a certain level. So shooting was difficult, rebounding was difficult, and every time like he took a hit on it, he was worried that it was going to be even worse. So like that's the point. If if you just like don't have better options to go to, the Cavs just swallow the fact that we're going to give up some spacing. We're going to give up something offensively, but we're going to be so dominant defensively. Now they can sit there and say, "Well, if we move Evan to the 5 and we split those two guys up, we're gaining something. We're putting Niang at the four and we're gaining spacing and shooting and a three-point threat. Or, you know, this version of Dean Wade might be a little bit better than the version of Dean Wade that we saw in the second half of last year. Or maybe we go super small and we try Max Struess at the four, something that they did in the first preseason game against Atlanta. Having more reliable, better options, I think, is going to allow them to look at the situation and say, there is something that we're going to gain by splitting those guys up, and it's worth it. Now, the trade-off is defense. They were number one in defense right. last year, which was really, I mean, for all the all the kind of negativity about how their offense performed in the playoffs and J.B. Bickerstaff's coaching in the playoffs, like really shockingly amazing outcome to be the number one defense in the NBA. Um, and giving up as many offensive rebounds as they gave up to still have that kind of defense. Tells you how good their first shot defense was. Well, and, and there's if you look at the shooting numbers, there's no flukiness to it. It's not like they got lucky with opponent threes or mid-range jumpers. They're like they got no luck in, in that sense at all. Um, we spent the whole season last year. Who's the fifth guy? They don't have the mm-hmm. fifth guy. Where's the three and D guy? Well, three and D guys are really hard to find. They all make once they're off their rookie contracts like thirty million dollars a year. Yeah. You just get three and D guys on the wing uh, who can play the three and the four. Okoro's three point. Three-pointers didn't come. I mean, teams just leave him wide open. That's yeah. fine. He, he gets tax open space and does stuff in transition. Struess is a three and some D, like maybe passable <laughs> D on the right night. Okay, he's, he's tough. He's strong. He's not yeah. like throw him at Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and 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 hope for the best kind of thing. But he's he, he's all right. What is their level of concern about maintaining, let's say, a top five defense and and the level of concern about, okay, once we get into the playoffs, it is about matchups. And if we meet one of these apex wings, mm-hmm. what are we going to do? So I want to paint a picture for you because you brought up Isaac Kokoro and how teams just ignore him. The difference between what can be possible for this team with Max Struess versus Isaac Kokoro to me is striking. And it's highlighted by these numbers. So on catch and shoot threes alone, the average distance of the defender from Isaac Okoro was more than nine feet. Zach, that is the length of a boa constrictor. 
I believe that, it was the largest such distance in the whole NBA for any shooter. I believe it was fourth. Fourth? Okay. Fourth on catch-and-shoot threes alone. For Max Struess, the average distance of the defender was a little bit more than five feet away. That was the 23rd highest. It was in the same realm with Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, and KD led the NBA in terms of uh, in terms of shortest distance. It was about five feet, 5.02 or something along those lines. So it's just a different level of gravity that Max Struess is going to bring to the table. And I think there is a philosophical shift, a slight philosophical shift here, Zach. The Cavs, they're defense first. JB loves defense. He's talked about not taking a significant step back. But I think they're okay with taking a slight step back defensively if they're going to gain significantly on the offensive end of the floor. For the first couple of years of JB and while they were trying to implement their system and um, put a culture in place, everything was about defense, 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 defense. The lineup decisions that they made were so much about defense. And now I think they're ready to make more offensive minded decisions, which is why I believe Max is going to be in the starting lineup, which is why I believe that George Niang might finish some games at various points throughout the course of this season. Could could Niang play center? Some? I think he could some in the right matchup for sure. Um, I think Dean Wade could play the three in some matchups. Don't, don't get me sure. too excited. Don't do it to me. Don't do it. <laughs> I'm going to keep bringing up Dean Wade until you do. Well, it. it's, it's <laughs> Dean Wade is Dean Wade's important to think about for me. I mean, look, I mean, I I find Dean Wade extremely important, but. You know, you look at their rotation. I agree with you. Struess is going to start. I find it puzzling that they just haven't come out and said that yet. So yeah. it's it's the four core guys in Struess. And then the bench, like the way they stagger the minutes, you keep you often keep one of Garland or Mitchell on. You often keep one of Allen or Mobley on. I would say the top three bench guys, I would just, maybe I'm wrong, are Levert, who's fine, yeah. Niang, and Okoro. That gets you to eight because I still think they have to give Okoro a shot because his defense is, is and his open court play is that good. Completely That's good. eight. If you're really, really serious, you could just limit it to that eight. Nobody does that in the regular season. You go nine, ten, whatever. Yep. Who are guys nine and ten? Is like Ty Jerome going to get yep. a shot as a backup point guard? Like wh- who? How does that work? Yeah, I think Ty Jerome and I think Damian Jones, depending on what happens with Jared Allen. Um, and, and I think the way that they're going to look at that 9-10, Zach, is like, it depends on what they need on a given night, right? Maybe they need some more ball handling and they go to Ty Jerome. Maybe they need some more floor spacing um, size and they go with Dean Wade. Maybe they need to have some facsimile of Jared Allen. Certainly not the same player as Jared Allen, but some of the same skill sets as Jared Allen. And they go to Damian Jones. Um, I I think it's just going to vary night by night, um, maybe possession by possession, matchup by matchup. Um, But at the very least, Zach, they have more NBA playable guys that they can go to, right? Their 9-10 is not like 13-14 from last year. It's like a legitimate NBA player that they could go to. And Ty Jerome is somebody that they may have to rely on a little bit more than they thought when they signed him. Zach, they signed him to be Ricky Rubio's understudy. Everything last year from the Cavs, their messaging about Ricky Rubio was wait until year two when he's further removed from the torn ACL, when he has more competitive game reps, when he's coming off a World Cup experience, 
That's all something that they were banking on with Ricky. Um, now he's not around right now. They don't know when he's going to be around. Um, there's no clarity whatsoever from either side of when he's going to be around. And you have to think about what version of Ricky the player are you going to get, even if he does come because he hasn't played much basketball um, during this absence. And the last version of Ricky Rubio that they saw couldn't even be played in the series against the Knicks. He looked like a shell of himself. He looked like he was in a bad place physically and mentally. So Ty Jerome is probably going to get more opportunities than the Cavs thought they were going to have to give him and probably more than what Ty thought he was going to get when he signed with the Cavs. And they like him. They think he can do some of the things that they need from a third guard or emergency backup point guard. But the value in the way that they constructed this roster to Zach is that if they just have to stagger Donovan and Darius and make one of them the de facto point guard, I think they're totally okay with doing that. And I think that's part of the reason why last night Donovan Mitchell played into the second half of the second preseason game because it was a different look that they wanted to they wanted to evaluate. I think Ty Jerome's an NBA rotation player. Yep. I've always had a soft spot for Damian Jones. I don't I don't even know why. You know why? Because he's a sneaky good passer from the high post. And if they're going to play him as this like emergency backup center, if Jared Allen's hurt for a little bit, and yeah. I think he's going to be back fairly soon from what I read, I, I hope they try to lean into his passing a little bit just to see like, all right, guys, cut, move. Like right. other guys, cut, move. The other thing I forgot to mention is, and I'm curious to see if you've talked to the coaches about this or how much we're going to see this. I, I mentioned the wing defense and the Tatums and the Browns of the world. And like, yeah, nobody has players who can defend. Like the Bucks had Drew Holiday to defend Jimmy Butler and it and Jimmy Butler like was a human volcano yeah. for four wins in the playoffs. And it didn't matter that they had Drew Holiday. <laughs> but you would still like to have somebody who's decent enough that it's not like an absolute crisis every time those guys touch the ball. Yes, yeah, some resistance. Yeah. And I've said for a while now, I like the idea in doses and only when Allen is also on the floor yeah. to patrol the back line of trying Mobley in that role. Yep. And like it requires shifting Struess onto Al Horford or right. whatever version of like a bigger player that you think Struess can hide out on. I, I like that idea only when Allen's on the floor because if Mobley's beat, there's got to be rim protection behind him. Yep. If Mobley's the center and there's no other big, there is no rim protection. Is that something the coaches have like? You've seen it in flashes. Have they talked about that? Is that a tool that we're going to see? I think so. I think there are different aspects to Evan that we're going to see in year three that we haven't seen in year one and year two. We talked about the offense and using him as an offensive hub. And the Cavs are going to run some DHO stuff with Evan Mobley and Max Struess and put Evan Mobley in the Bam out of bio type role on the offensive end of the floor. But I think they're going to give him more responsibility on the defensive end of the floor, Zach, if they believe that the rest of the defense isn't going to suffer by taking him out of the paint, right? Like there's always a give and take with every decision that you make. There's always a give and take with every lineup construction you try and use. And if the Cavs are going to try Mobley out there on the perimeter against some of the better wings, because they don't want to give that matchup to Max Drews, or they don't want to give that matchup to Donovan Mitchell, then they have to believe that they're gaining enough there and not suffering when it comes to protecting the paint because so much of their defense is designed around two all defensive type players in Jarrett and Evan and what they can do in the paint and around the rim. Um, the other thing I will say, Zach, is that 
the Cavs coming into this year, they don't want to cross match as much. And I think they're going to ask their individual defenders, Darius, Donovan, Max Struess, take your own man and see if you can handle that particular matchup. Because I think they believe, going back to that series against New York, and I believe that they're right on this, that a big part, look, their offensive rebounding, the the, the number of offensive rebounds that they gave up was just staggering and there were so many layers to that and yes Jared Allen got pushed around and Evan Mobley wasn't physical enough and that's part of the reason why he put on seven pounds this past offseason and lived in the weight room so there was an element to that but the schemes that they ran defensively played part in New York just controlling the glass about 50 percent of the offensive rebounds that the Cavs gave up in that series against New York came after a blitz having Evan go out to the perimeter as the second defender on Jalen Brunson or Jared Allen go out to the perimeter and be the second defender on Jalen Brunson. And those guys were scrambling to try and get back into rebounding position. And it's very, very difficult to do Cause that. Because the, the Knicks are hunting Garland yes. and they like the Brunson-Garland matchup or they're like, whatever, they, they, they hunted. I thought the Cavs perimeter guys, one of the stories of their season was Lavert, Mitchell, Garland, three guys who have reputations as as offense first players and are yes. fantastic offense play offensive players. Lavert up and down, obviously, all bought in on defense and grinded yeah. and got around screens and yeah. blew up DHOs and bought into the made the rotations they were supposed to make. And then they ran into a matchup where it was like, "That's cool that you guys do all that stuff. Yeah. We're just gonna take." Jalen Brunson and have him beat the hell out of you because he's bigger, not bigger, he's just stronger and bulkier than you. And yep. there was just no, it doesn't matter how committed you are to the team concept if you're switched on to Jalen Brunson and he can just overpower you. Yes. So because of some of those things that happened in the Knicks series, it's not entirely, well, that series happened this kind of way. So everything that happened in that series, we're going to try and do the opposite or we're going to try and change from that. But you have to learn from that, right? So like, the things that they tried schematically put their bigs in a very, very difficult position. It put their defense in a very difficult position. So coming into this year, they're going to ask Darius to take some defensive matchups that maybe they haven't in the past. And Max Struess, guard your own position. Donovan Mitchell, guard your own position. And if it doesn't work the way that they want it to, and it's not effective for the defense, then at the very least, they have an option like Evan Mobley where if he has to go out to the perimeter and guard some of those apex wings that you are mentioning, I think they're willing to give him a chance at, at that kind of at that kind of matchup more so than what they have in, in the first two years. I think this is a this is a, a really gonna be a really fun team to watch, not only mm. because they have this sort of supernova talent in Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland is crafty and they have stars who are fun to watch. I think there's a lot of just sort of Every game, I'm going to just be looking for stuff to project forward. Like, does yeah. this work? Does that work? What's the tool they can use in the playoffs? I think they're going to be really fun to watch. And look, people can hear by the stats you're citing, by the X's and O's you're citing, Chris Fedor covers this team, like, unbelievably well. If you're not following him on Twitter, if you're not reading his stuff at Cleveland.com, you need a subscription to do it. Do it because you're not getting... Isaac Okoro shot distance and Cavs X's and O's and how they did this in the Knicks series and what they did up high impacted their rebounding. It wasn't just Mitchell Robinson beating the hell out of Jared Allen. It was all this other stuff. You're not getting that elsewhere. So Chris, um, thank you for spending some time with us. Um, everyone, what's your Twitter handle? 
at Chris Fedor. Just my name. Easy. Uh, I and or your X handle. I'm sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, follow his stuff. It's just second to none. And, and we'll have you back on when we get maybe 15, 20 games of a sample size. But I know you're busy. You've been traveling around. You got a little kid. Thank you for making some time. Zach, man, always enjoy it. Have me on anytime.